I'm going to jump right in because we have a lot to cover today. So I want to say welcome. If you're new, I want to let you know that we have notes all around the room on, at the communion tables. It has uh, some of the summaries and history and the scriptures that we're going through today. Uh, also, we have Bibles and the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those home uh, as our gift for you. If you have a smartphone, well, who has a dumb phone? Anybody? If, so if you have a phone, uh, you can bring up an app called Uversion, click on more, click on events. It'll bring us up by GPS and you can follow along. It has all the announcements for today and everything that goes along with today's message. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. Would you please stand up for the reading of God's word? This is John chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus says, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your good gifts to us. Lord, that you are a God that is so gracious. Lord, I pray that today... Um, we would be reminded and we would be surprised once again that we would marvel at your grace to us. Lord, and that we might be able to see the areas in our lives that we've been putting our hope and our trust in that, that is not you, Lord, those places that will never fully satisfy us. So Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning as we look at the Samaritan woman and uh, that we would be changed as a result. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So uh, we're continuing our look at various women in the Bible uh, in this series called Not So Little Women, as you've heard, which is a play on the title of Louisa May Alcott's book, Little Women. And most of the women that we'll be looking at in this series are named, but there are many women in the Bible that remain anonymous. And there's so many women in the Old Testament that are known only as wives and daughters of named men. Jesus' own sisters, Peter's wife and mother-in-law, the bleeding woman in Mark Five, the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7, uh, the poor widow in Mark 12, the woman that was caught in adultery, and many more. And there are historical and cultural reasons that women may have been left unnamed. You see, overall, in the ancient world, authors tended to prioritize men's words and actions and perspectives. And across the Roman Empire, including Jews and Samaritans, women of all legal, social, and economic classes uh, were marginalized with laws restricting property ownership, marriage and divorce, and social customs that limited their public presence. Now, it was possible for women to initiate, participate in all of these things, but the social and the cultural expectations made it very difficult. In literary sources and legal codes and inscriptions, women were portrayed from the perspective of men, often very wealth wealthy, powerful, elite men. And because of this, our knowledge of the perspectives and um, of the perspectives of women in the first century, they're limited in what we can see. They're only glimpsed in personal letters and inscriptions and in legal documents and in archaeological remains. And therefore, it requires some creative and cautious creativity when trying to understand their stories better. And we have to be careful how we fill in those gaps. You see, because the danger for the church in interpreting these stories can be to minimize the significance of women's lives and their contribution to the work of God throughout church history and even today. Remember back in week two, Aaron talked about Eve, the very first woman, and how she's really gotten a bad rap from the fall. And there have been those throughout 
history in the church that have viewed her negatively as a woman who, number one, mishandled the word of God, number two, who tempted the man to sin, and number three, who usurped male authority. Now, this has no doubt affected how other women in the Bible, women in the church, and often women in general have been viewed by some. And in the wake of the recent Me Too and Church Too movements, we need to take a long, hard look at the assumptions that we make about these women that go beyond what the scriptures actually say. So today, we are looking at Jesus' remarkable encounter with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in John chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you're using an element Bible, that's page 578. Now, this is the longest conversation recorded in the Bible that Jesus has with anyone, man or woman. And like Eve's story, there are sev and several other women in the Bible, many details are left out, including the woman's name. Now, if you've been in the church for a while, you probably know, historically in the church, she has been depicted as an example of sin and sexual immorality due to her marital or relationship history. Many consider her to be a, a pros, a, an adulteress at best, or for some, even a prostitute. And of course, we know that that in itself isn't a problem for God, as we looked at Rahab's story last week. But today, I want to invite you to peel back the layers of interpretation and discover an alternative message of hope, of grace, and of transformation. And hopefully, we'll be able to see how her story might empower both women and men in the church today. So we're starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for, again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, that's noon. A woman from Samaria came uh, to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, Samar a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So to truly appreciate the significance of this encounter, it's essential to understand some of the historical and cultural context. So I'm going to spend some time today actually getting into that. But firstly, interactions at a well held a unique place in society. They were not just about fetching water, but they were also about community and social norms. And the fact that this conversation took place at the sixth hour or at noon, a very hot part of the day, is often seen as an indication of the woman's sin or her shame, since only a social outcast would fetch water alone during that time of the day. But there's just as much biblical evidence and historical evidence that places women at wells during the heat of the day. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 29, in verses 7 through 10, Jacob, whose well they're at, the son of Rebekah, who we looked at two weeks ago, he met his wife, Rachel, at a well at high day. One writer said, it would be nice to share the work of drawing water with others at the cool time of the day, but doing so alone at noon is not immoral. Secondly, in Jesus' day, you may know this, there was a great deal of animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. And while it did occasionally happen, it was unusual for Jews to have dealings 
with Samaritans. And in some ways, the tensions between them are similar to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that we actually see today. It would have been risky for, uh, for Jesus to travel through Samaria. But Jesus came to make peace between God and man, as well as between man and man. And how that's needed today, as we see what's going on in the world. Now, the Samaritans, they considered themselves true, the true Israelites and the keepers of the ancient faith. They were likely from the northern tribes of Israel, and they only considered the first five books of the Bible to be scripture. Their creed was one God, Yahweh, one prophet, Moses, one book, Torah, and one place, Mount Gerizim. And they considered the Jews to be heretical, as the Jews did them. Now, they also disagreed on the place of worship, Mount Gerizim versus Jerusalem, and on the other books of the Old Testament, the prophets and the writings. And despite their common origins, their differences led to conflicts, they led to accusations that we might identify as racism today. And so this explains why when the Jews were arguing with Jesus in the temple in John 8, 48, they said, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? I mean, put those two things together. Now, most Jews would have considered eating anything that was touched by a Samaritan to be defiling. And this fear would have just been magnified by the fact that, the, that she was a woman because Jewish leaders would soon after this codify a law that labeled all the daughters of Samaritans as menstruants, basically making them perpetually unclean. And so this explains the woman's surprise here when Jesus, a Jew, asked for a drink from her, a woman of Samaria. And it's in this setting here that Jesus breaks down the religious and the social barriers as well as the cultural biases to engage with the Samaritan woman. Look at verse 10. Jesus says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as his sons, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go. Call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. All she can see at this point is a weary Jewish traveler in need of a drink. If she only knew the glory of the one with whom she was speaking, and if she understood the gift of God, she would have been asking him for a far better drink of living water. But she doesn't get it yet. You see, she, she thinks he's talking about the fresh running spring that is feeding Jacob's well. And since Jesus has nothing to draw water with, you know, where could he get that living water? But Jesus is talking about something else. In Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13, God says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They had rejected the fresh running supply of God and His faithful goodness. 
and instead they chose the stagnant waters of cisterns or vessels that were made with their own hands, only to discover that they were cracked and that there was nothing left inside to sustain life or blessing. The living water that Jesus gives is the gift of God, and it refers to his grace. It refers to the knowledge of God, to the life-giving, transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And there are several things in here that I think we need to see and we need to understand about the gift of God. And you have those in your notes, and I want to go through those. And the first one is the gift of God is surprising. It's surprising. She doesn't yet understand this. You see, the gift of God's grace, it's always a surprise to us. And we need to understand that. The woman and Jesus' disciples later, they're surprised that Jesus is cross, he crosses all the barriers and boundaries of the day. Racial, religious, gender. Jesus surprises everybody by engaging with and revealing himself to a person that's on the outside of those boundaries. Now, we know this isn't an isolated uh, occurrence. Jesus broke social and religious customs many times to show God's love to all marginalized people, diseased lepers, demon-possessed people, poor children, and women. And the reason? His living water is a gift. It's grace. It's not given on the basis of merit or pedigree or class or status or gender hierarchy or appearance. It's a shocking surprise to everyone. Why? Because there is no surprise with religion or morality or culture. Everybody knows how that's supposed to work. If you perform, you'll be rewarded. If you purify yourself and become a good person, if you really, really seek, then you'll be blessed. Then you'll meet God. Well, th there's no surprise there. But she was just a thirsty outsider. We don't see any particular merit in her. And because Christianity is grace by its very essence, it's full of surprises. Anyone, anywhere can meet Jesus. Anyone, anywhere can have him. It doesn't matter what you've done. And this is why we, as the church, we have to leave those divisive distinctions behind because not doing so will, is to deny the gospel of grace. And because we have a God of grace, we will continually be surprised. Because God is gracious, he can't be manipulated by our performance. But he also won't be deterred by our failures. He can't be put in a box. Like God will only bless you if you perform. Or God won't use you if you struggle and if you fall. God couldn't use me because fill in the blanks. The gift of God is a surprise. The second thing we see is that the gift of God is ultimate satisfaction. You see, it's more than just forgiveness of sins. Most of us don't know what it's like to be really, really, really thirsty to the point of dehydration. They understood this way better because of their hot and their arid climate. Our bodies are made mostly of water, especially our, our brains and our blood and our, our vital organs. We'll die of dehydration before we die of starvation. And without water, every fiber, every nerve in our body will cry out for it. Your tongue swells up so you can't swallow. Your throat becomes on fire with searing, burning pain inside. And Jesus says, incredibly, I have something that your soul needs, that your spirit needs, more than your body needs water. 
And not only that, he says, if you go to any other source, your, your thirst will just get worse. It's like drinking salt water when you're dying of thirst. <clears throat> if we try to quench that thirst, that spiritual thirst with any other cause or any other hope, any other relationship, any other beauty, any other rest, more than Jesus, we'll just die of thirst even faster. Jesus says that the living water that he gives will become in us a spring welling up to eternal life. Now, this is a remarkable promise. What does this mean? What is a spiritual thirst? We thirst for purpose in life. If we're not living for Jesus, then what is our purpose going to be? You might live for your family. You might live for your job, for some political cause or whatever it is. You're having to go outside of yourself for it. But what happens when those things don't go as planned or when they fall apart? You'll die of thirst. We also thirst for beauty and we thirst for love. But even if we find a great person to love, that person's not always welcoming. They're not always accepting. And unfortunately, they're mortal as well as sinful. Jesus is saying, I can give you a purpose, a love, a peace, a hope, a beauty that's permanently welling up within you. Now, of course, we want to live for our family and for justice in the world, you know, to some degree. But the beauty here of the image of the living water is that you can never, ever, ever clog up a spring and stop it. You just can't stop it. You can fill a well. You can build on top of it and stop it, but you can never fill up a spring. No matter how much junk you throw on it, a spring will always bubble on through. And Jesus says, I can give you in me a spiritual purpose, a spiritual love, a spiritual acceptance, a spiritual peace, and a spiritual beauty that no matter what you face in this life, no matter the circumstances, all of the junk, all of the gunk that gets thrown in there, my joy will always bubble on through. That's a Christian. That's a picture of a Christian. It doesn't matter how much junk gets piled on top. Jesus' living water becomes a spring in us, welling up to eternal life. It's eternal. You can't stop it. So the gift of God is ultimate satisfaction. Which brings us to the third thing. The gift of God is personal. You see, she's thinking, yes, I, I would love to be the first person in my neighborhood to have running water so I don't have to come to the well anymore. He's talking about her spiritual thirst, and she's thinking about her physical thirst. And so what does he say? Go get your husband. Go get your husband and come here. Why does he change the subject? Well, he doesn't. He didn't change the subject. You see, she's saying, I'm not spiritually thirsty. That's not my problem. And he says, oh, yeah? Go get your husband. You see, the common interpretation here is that Jesus is revealing her sexual immorality. This idea being that she forced her husbands to divorce her because of her adultery and that she remarried because of her uh, se sinful sexual desires or to satisfy her longing for a relationship. And no doubt to our Western minds and our culture, the idea of five husbands uh, and a plus one, it sounds scandalous, right? But that's not the tone here. You see, no doubt she was just as sinful as the next person. But Jesus never says anything about sin or about forgiveness because of her marital history or because of her current living situation. And this is important because in the Gospel of John, Jesus frequently addresses sin 
and the forgiveness of sin that's available through him. And so that makes its absence here remarkable and important to the story. So, is there another interpretation of this story that's possible? One that isn't based on major assumptions, that doesn't fill in the gaps by reducing her to a sexually sinful character? Well, this is where we need even more cultural context. So I want to spend a little bit of time on that. Remember, when it came to marriage and it came to divorce, women had limited rights and choices in the first century. And at that time, marriage wasn't about relationship. It wasn't fundamentally romantic or emotional. It wasn't even about the two people who were married. Marriage was about family and community and economy. And to be married was to participate in and to contribute to communal life. And it basically had two purposes. The first one was to join two households for their mutual uh, benefit, uh, their economic, their social, their political advantage. And the second was to provide a means for the birth of legitimate children. And this was very important because of the high childhood mortality rate at the time. Things like love, friendship, intimacy, those things would typically develop after the marriage as a result of sharing life together. But it was the family, the, the bride's father or some other guardian in particular, that had the responsibility uh, for all of the legal aspects of that marriage, for selecting the groom and for arranging the marriage contract. And legally, the bride, she had the right to reject or consent to the marriage, but her consent was expected by both Roman and Jewish custom. Also, at, was, as was common at this time, the Samaritan woman was likely between the ages of 12 and 15 years old when she got first married. Now, this re reflected the values that was placed on virginity, trainability, and repro reproduction at the time. Her husband could have been anywhere between 20 and 60 years old. And it was typical for the groom to be at least 10 years older. And scholars estimate that given the probability of death from childbirth or illness or injury, marriages in the Roman Empire lasted approximately an average of 15 years on average. So that means that many of them ended much sooner than that. So many wives became widowed due to the general lack of good medical care. And because of the demands of poverty or a family social advancement the need, and the need for young women to bear children, remarriage was expected for widows as well as for divorced women. Now, according to Jewish tradition, only husbands had the right to divorce, not the wives. And they could divorce for reasons like infidelity, infertility, uh, social or economic advantages for the family, or things as trivial as burned meals or the opportunity to pursue a more attractive woman. Maybe things haven't changed that much in that regard. However, the rabbis, they detailed specific regulations for the divorce papers that are mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 24 because they were concerned about the woman's future children because she was expected to remarry. So, in addition to all of that, getting through it, in addition to all of that, in the Roman Empire, cohabitation was also a common and acceptable alternative to formal contracted marriage. You could, you could uh, begin a marriage informally through cohabitation, which was considered just as legitimate as contracted marriage, and essentially that became the marker for the intent to marry. And with all of that, there were also circumstances 
that prevented contractual marriage. Roman citizens couldn't marry non-citizens. Uh, elite Romans couldn't marry slaves or entertainers, which is different from Hollywood where the entertainers are the elite today. Um, soldiers and enslaved people, they didn't have the right to marry at all. Uh, rabbis prohibited marriage with slaves. Legitimately born Jews couldn't marry illegitimate Jews. Priests had restrictions on who they could marry as well. And so people in these categories could establish an informal marriage by living together, which was perfectly legal, even though it wasn't legally recognized. And all of that to say that it is possible that the Samaritan woman couldn't marry her sixth man due to the difference in status or identity. He could have been a soldier stationed in her town or a freed slave, either of which may have benefited her family. So all of that said, was it unusual for the Samaritan woman to have six marital relationships? Yes, it was. It was unusual. But rather than seeing a woman who was looking for love in all the wrong places, the context reveals a woman who lived with an expectation that she would marry for the good of her family and her community. Her spouse and his family would have been selected by her family, and her consent was inevitable. It's possible she didn't even live with each husband because an engagement can end with death or divorce before the marriage ever began. She may have survived the death of several husbands. She may have experienced divorce for reasons just mentioned. But the fact of her remarriages make it unlikely that she was suspected or convicted of adultery. And in all of this, in marriage, in death, in divorce, remarriage, informal marriage, she was not necessarily at fault in any way. And again, Jesus, he doesn't accuse her of sin as he did with so many others in the Gospel of John. Neither sin nor forgiveness is mentioned in this story. So all of that to say, to ask, what do you think she was thirsty for? What was she thirsty for? You see, her soul, like any of ours, would long for normal things, security, a stable home, a family to provide her purpose and meaning, love, acceptance, just a general sense of well-being. But for reasons that we don't know, it's likely those things had eluded her. However she lost her husbands, each one would have provided a hope for a normal, secure, purpose-filled life. And yet each subsequent loss would likely add layers of insecurity, disillusionment, fear, and loneliness. Jesus says to her, you don't think you're spiritually thirsty? You deeply thirst for God, for closure, for acceptance, for security, for significance. You just don't recognize it for what it is. And this is typical of people, right? This is typical of us. You see, you don't have to manufacture saving faith. You just have to transfer it from where you already have it. Because you're placing your faith somewhere, whether you realize it or not. There's some place that you're drinking deep. There's somewhere you're going for that spiritual purpose, for that deep love, for that closure, for those safe arms around you. In her case, yeah, maybe it was a, a, a husband that would have brought that security, but that's not the only possibility by any means, right? Career, appearance, acceptance by friends, making a difference, 
political causes, wealth, status, control in your life. It could be anything. It could be anything. And you're never going to find his living water until you see where you're drinking now. So the question is, where is the place that you stuck the bucket of your soul down in to draw satisfaction? Whatever it is for us, they're all broken cisterns. They're false masters, pseudo-saviors that we go to instead of the wellspring of eternal life that Jesus gives. And here, rather than condemning her sin, Jesus' knowledge of the Samaritan woman's life helps her begin to recognize Jesus' identity, who he really is. Again, she's surprised as she realizes that God, he sees her, he knows her suffering, he knows all her struggles, he knows all of her disappointments. And so she, she says to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on, worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This brings us to the fourth thing that we see and that we need to understand about the gift of God, and that is the gift of God is intellectual. It's intellectual. Here again, some think, some think that she's changing the subject, that she's trying to divert his attention uh, because she doesn't want to talk about her sin. But I, I don't think Jesus would have let that slide if that's where he was going with this. You see, because she knows that Jesus is at least a prophet, she asked the burning theological question of her day. Who's right, the Jews or the Samaritans? Who are the true people of God? And where are they supposed to worship? She's thoughtful about the things of God. And we see that Jesus, he reinforces the differences between them, and he confirms th that the Jews are the ones that have the full scope of biblical authority, including the prophetic expectations of the coming Messiah. But his affirmation here is sandwiched between a challenge to both Jews and Samaritans, declaring that both places of worship will be replaced with spirit and truth. What does that mean? God's presence dwelling in the temple in Jerusalem was holy and access was limited. It was restricted. But we see that in John chapter 1 and verse 14 that in Jesus, God camps out. He tabernacles among the people, making God's glory visible. Jesus himself replaces the function of the temple, making access to the holy place of worship open to everybody, open to all. And at the same time, he brings an end to the historic divide between the Samaritans and the Jews. Now, it's at this point, she's beginning to see that maybe Jesus is more than just a prophet. Could he be the ultimate prophet that the Samaritans were anticipating? 
They were expecting someone called the Teheb or the Restorer, uh, who would be like Moses and who would reveal truth and who would teach them God's word and who would restore all things. And Jesus, being a Jew, she broaches the subject using the Jewish term Messiah. And she becomes the first person here to whom Jesus reveals his identity as the Christ. What does he say? I am he. I'm the one who's speaking with you is he. I am the Messiah. She hears the first I am statement in the Gospel of John. And we know Jesus, he's going to go on to say, I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the resurrection in the life. I am the way, the truth in the life. I am the true vine. And several times he'll just say, I am, claiming the name of God that God gave to, um, spoken to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. There's no mistaking who Jesus claimed to be. And so then we see that the disciples return, and what happens? They're surprised. They're surprised that he's talking alone with a woman, with a Samaritan. What could he possibly want with her? Well, the answer is there in verse 23. God seeks worshipers. And in verse 26, he's speaking with her in order to reveal his identity to her. And it seems like she, she finally gets it. Jesus is the gift of God. He's the promised one who alone gives spiritual living water. And in this beautiful moment here, she leaves her water jar behind, symbolizing this newfound understanding of the living water that Jesus provides. It's an emblem, if you will, of her transformation from a life of spiritual drought to one that's overflowing with God's grace. And it overflows to everybody that she knows. She tells everybody, about Jesus, how he knew her life story, his claim as the Messiah, she becomes the first evangelist that's recorded in the New Testament. And look at the reaction that she gets in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Their reaction to her testimony here is the strongest evidence that she wasn't an outcast. She wasn't ostracized from her community. I mean, certainly they would have known her unique and difficult marital history. And that for Jesus to know her specific story was nothing short of a miracle. But there's no indication of shame as her neighbors not only listened to her, but many believed in Jesus because of her testimony. So they invite him to stay and preach, resulting in many more uh, believing that he is the Savior of the world. And Jesus, in his harvest analogy, in verses 35 through 38, it makes the effectiveness of her testimony even more clear. She and Jesus are the sowers. They're sowing together. And the harvest is the belief of the, of the villagers. And so Jesus here, he uses her. He uses a woman. He uses a Samaritan to lead the mission to reach her community. Her life is really an example for all of us. I mean, what an amazing transformation that we see here. Looking at her story without the lens of sin, we see that she expresses wisdom and thoughtfulness and awareness throughout this whole conversation with Jesus. Which brings me to the fifth thing that we see about the gift of God, and that is that the gift of God comes in stages. 
It comes in stages. You see, her experience is a model of discipleship for all of us. Through her questions to Jesus, she grows in understanding. She realizes that she's been th thirsty for more than earthly relationships can provide. And then she transfers her trust and her hope to Jesus for his spiritual living water. And then that overflows and she witnesses to Jesus among all of her neighbors. So we see how the gift of God comes in stages from spiritual blindness to spiritual reality, bit by bit. How does he do that? How does he do that? Well, we saw first he gets her alone. He gets her alone. We're not sure why she was alone at the well at noon, but I think we can be certain that it wasn't a coincidence. I mean, Jesus couldn't have had this lengthy conversation with her if other women were drawing water there or if his disciples were there at the time. How does he get us alone? Oftentimes, it's when we're struggling, when we're feeling lost, when we fail. You see, when you're successful, you, you tend to have a lot of people around, right? When you're doing well, you're busy. Uh, you don't sit around and think about the meaning of life or what you're really living for. You, you don't ask all of those big questions. You're busy. You're happy. But when life gets tough, it gets you alone with him. It makes you think. Sometimes all of the other wells that we're drinking from and trying to find purpose, they dry up or they get contaminated. And we realize just how spiritually thirsty we really are. We start asking those big questions. And of course, God can use any circumstance to get us alone and to realize our spiritual thirst for him. But it starts by being alone. And then we saw he got her intellectually engaged. He starts by engaging her mind and addressing her questions. And one thing we learn is that Christianity, it's far more than intellectual, but it's not less. It's far more than reasoning and thinking, but it's not less than that. You don't have a real experience with Jesus that's only the brain, but you can't have one that leaves the brain out. He gets her thinking. Things we thought that weren't important to us, like faith in God, he gets us alone and we gradually become interested to learn more. And then we saw that he gets personal, right? He shows us where we already have our hopes, and then we're ready to receive that living water. He says to us, go get your husband. Go get your career. Go get your romance. Go get your marriage. Go get your family. Whatever it is, there's no way that they can quench your thirst, your spiritual thirst, like I can. And then finally, he reveals himself. He says to her, I am he. I've what you, I'm, I'm what you've been waiting for. I'm the one who made you. We realize that he is our ultimate hope for purpose and satisfaction and for salvation. And so we transfer our hope and our trust to him, and he becomes our never-ending spring of living water. And that should overflow to everybody that we know. So the gift of God comes in stages. He gets her alone. He gets her intellectually engaged. He gets personal. He reveals himself, which brings us to the last one. Deep breath. The gift of God is for anyone and everyone. You see, God created us. And if we're not living for him, we're living for ourselves, as if we're our own God. And so we're sinning against him. And sin requires payment. But Jesus shows us why this great living water is available to anybody, anyone, anywhere. doesn't matter what you've done or doesn't matter who you are. 
Jesus started this conversation with the woman by saying he's thirsty. But that's not the last time that he said he thirsts. You see, on the cross, when he said he thirsts, it was the big thirst. In the book of Nahum, in chapter 1, and verse 6, it says, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The sun that can dehydrate and torment us physically, it's just a small picture of what happened to Jesus because the wrath of God, the eternal justice of God, greater than a million suns, came down directly on him. He died of thirst because his favor is what we so desperately needed. On the cross, Jesus quoted Psalm 22, verse 1, when he said, my, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it goes on to say in verse 14 and 15, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. He died of thirst so that we could have the living water. He had the ultimate spiritual thirst. He died in, tor in torment so that we could have the cool water of the favor of God. That's the reason why the gift is for anyone and for everyone. The hour has come so that we could have a temple anywhere. It doesn't matter your culture, doesn't matter your pedigree, your record, your race, your gender. Not because all good people everywhere can come to God because God is spiritual, but because the hour has come and now is that he died of thirst so that you and I can have a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. Amen? I want to invite the band to come up. As we do every week, we're going to take some time to uh, reflect as the band plays, spend some time in um, singing, praise, worship to God. Maybe a time that we reflect on all that God has done for us. And as we come to communion, and we invite you to participate in communion by taking that cracker and breaking it. And as we do that, we remember his body that was broken for us. And as we dip it in the wine or the grape juice, we remember his blood that was shed for us to cleanse us from all sin. We remember that that's the reason why we can have that well of eternal life welling up in us, that spring How many of you here have been surprised by God? Raise, raise your hand. Anybody? Surprised by the grace of God? I think it's hard to be a, a Christian without being surprised from time to time because God is, is surprising. Maybe you've never experienced that today. Maybe you're at a place where uh, you just have some questions. Uh, as we spend time and we reflect, um, we're also going to provide an opportunity uh, to give back to God some of what he's given to us. We have offering boxes around the room. And uh, we give back to God because he so gracious, graciously has given to us. And we want to spend some time uh, giving you a chance to ask questions or to pray. Uh, we have people that will be uh, back behind those double doors across the way in the lounge. They'll be there to talk to if you, if you do have questions or if you want to learn more about what this living water is. Maybe the whole thing sounds weird to you. It's like, I don't know what this living water is, but I know that I've been drinking from wells that aren't satisfying me. 
And maybe God is saying to you, I, I want to surprise you today. I have something that will bring you ultimate satisfaction, myself. And maybe you haven't tasted that living water, but you just, you're at the place where you're just intellectually, you need to learn more. Ask them your questions. They'd love to talk to you. They'd love to, to answer some of those questions that you may have. Um, maybe you uh, are a believer. Maybe you've tasted God's living water, but maybe it's just a trickle. You know, maybe you've got all this junk, and you know, I got all this gunk on top of it. And yeah, it's still bubbling on through, but you just want to talk to somebody about maybe how you can navigate that and, and how, you know, God can become that well that's, that's the spring that's welling up to eternal life in you, to where you experience that overflow to everybody around you. Whatever it may be, go talk to them. They'd love to, to talk with you, to pray with you. Um, so let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your grace to us, Lord, that is always surprising. God, in so many ways, may we never stop marveling at your grace in our lives. Father, maybe even as believers, we have, we tend to, to drink from other wells of purpose, Lord, where we try to find satisfaction that aren't you. And they come up short, Lord. We walk away feeling thirsty because we know that they can't satisfy. Lord, uh, only you can bring us that ultimate satisfaction by your spirit. Father, help us to see your grace in our lives. Jesus, we pray that you would reveal yourself, that, that we might feel the full weight of what it means when you say, I am he. I'm the one. I'm the one you've been longing for. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one that you need. I'm the one that made you. And may we transfer whatever hope and trust we're placing in other things, may we transfer that to you. May we trust you, Lord, as our Savior, as our loving God, as one who has given everything for us. Speak to us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.